Well, thank you, Brother Leon. Uh, I was blessed by that. I will long remember my time here. Uh, if you want to make an impression on me, you just sing well. <laughs> and I know that where that happens, there were some people who had some input. Uh, you know, the only thing that happens automatically is sin. And anything else that happens that's worthwhile, somebody had a vision. Somebody put some effort into it. And I don't know who it was here, but uh, whoever it was, I want to commend you. And I want to say this. Uh, in order to have a singing community, there has to be special attention paid to the children. Uh, we all know that uh, a child can learn a foreign language without even trying if he's exposed to that language between the ages of 2 and 11. I don't completely understand the human brain, but between those two ages, there's a window of opportunity that a child will learn anything that he is given significant exposure to, whether it's a foreign language or any other uh, skill or information. That's also true for music. A child will just automatically develop a good ear for tune, for pitch, between the ages of 2 and 11, if they have somebody in their lives that gives them exposure to the pure melody. Now, when they come to church, they hear four parts. That's not going to help an awful lot. I mean, that's confusing. Uh, they're, they're not going to learn uh, good pitch consciousness there. And when we play music, usually it's four-part music uh, on our recorders, on our uh, CD players. The best thing is if there's a singing mother in the home where they hear just the soprano day after day after day. That was the privilege that I had. My mother was a singing mother. There were 11 of us children. We were all singers. And it was basically because my mother, without realizing it, I don't even think she was thinking what she was doing, she was giving us fabulous ear training during those years between the ages of 2 and 11. After the age of 11, something happens in the brain. Uh, I've heard various explanations. It begins to specialize, and it no longer absorbs just anything that comes to it. And then, if you want to learn a foreign language, or then you want to learn to sing, it takes some real effort, and it's difficult. So there's this wind of opportunity. Mothers, I guess I'm pleading with you, and maybe you're all doing it. But there's a wind of opportunity uh, that we dare not let our children get through without learning accurate pitch. And so I would say to Sunday school teachers, I don't know if you have Sunday school teachers or uh, I guess you don't have a Christian school and probably don't have Sunday school teachers. But I say to them, in the, from the age, in the primary Sunday school classes up to the age of 11, there should be a lot of unison singing, not very much part singing, because there's still children there that need that uh, ear training. Uh, in the Christian school when I was principal, I literally did not permit the lower grade teachers to sing in parts with their students till, the age, till, till grade four at least. Now they could sing rounds, but, but uh, part singing we didn't do simply because we were trying to maximize that wind of opportunity for all the children. So I'll just give that for what it's worth. Now, there's a song in your Christian hymnary that I wish desperately I had put in my book, but I did not. And so we're going to sing it now, 674. <clears throat> this is a song by the Wesleys. The text is by the Wesleys. The Wesleys set very high standards for music, both text and music. And we're singing this song basically for the last verse. 
Uh, we're going to sing verses 1 and 4. But this is what they say. Still, how many have sung this song before? A few of you have. Still let us on our guard be found and watch against the power of sound with sacred jealousy, lest haply sense should damp our zeal and music's charms beguile and steal our hearts away from thee. That's, uh, that was their concern. And that's my concern. That we do not allow the power of sound to steal our hearts away from God. Which is what has happened in much of the Christian church today. The so-called Christian church. So let's sing these uh, two verses. Verses 1 and 4. <clears throat> Do me so, Jesus, thou source of all our joys. For whom we now lift up our voice and all our strength exert. Do thou the grace we humbly claim, compose into a thankful frame and tune our people's heart and tune our every heart. Still let us on our guard be found and the sound with sacred jealousy, lest haply sand should damp our zeal and music's charms beguile and steal. Our hearts away from thee, from thee. <coughs> uh, this morning, take out your papers that uh, we passed out last night. <coughs> we want to talk today about. The profile of the new song. Now, the profile is an outline of something. You're, the profile of your face is the outline of your face. <clears throat> and so we want to know what does the new song look like. <clears throat> it's important to consider this subject because there's a lot of confusion today about what Christians should sing. Uh, and... Uh, it's important that we get a clear picture. Now, you're not going to hear me talk a lot about bad music. I don't like to talk about negative things. Uh, my philosophy has always been, it's better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. Uh, sometimes we have to talk a little bit about the darkness, but then we will talk a little bit about it. But uh, that's not going to be the emphasis. The emphasis this morning is going to be on what is good music. All right? Now, you notice there that Socrates, and I think I have this wrong. I think this quote comes from somebody else. But originally when I saw it, it was accredited to Socrates. So that's what's on your paper. Some of you might go home and get on the internet and find out who actually said this. But somebody said this. Let us write the words to the music of a nation, and we care not who writes its laws. I don't think most people are aware of the fact that it was not bad laws that ruined our nation. It wasn't even the bad morals that ruined our nation. It was the bad music that ruined our nation. It was the source of those other problems. 
The Beatles said, and I don't know why people didn't take them seriously, our music is designed to do two things. It's designed to generate rebellion, and it's designed to release people from their inhibitions, especially sexually. And it did just that. And we had two generations listening to that music. It did generate rebellion. I was a teenager during that time. And it did loosen people's morals. And I feel that the thing that undermined our nation was that throbbing beat that pounded away day after day in the ears of people. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. Plato became even more specific. He says, the introduction of a new kind of music must be shunned as imperiling the whole state since the styles of music are never disturbed without affecting the most important political institutions. And then Aristotle becomes even more specific. Music directly represents the passions or states of the soul. If one listens to the wrong kind of music, he will become the wrong kind of person. And the Greeks were extremely careful in their schools to teach music that they considered wholesome. And they required every boy to learn to play a lyre and to sing lyrical music, not the kind of music we hear today. Music was important in Israel's life, as we noticed last night. David made it extremely important. Now, music is not amoral, despite what Rick Warren and others say. I read one of Rick Warren's books till I got to this part, and then I just laid it down and said, if he doesn't understand anything better than this, I'm not sure I can trust anything else he says. He said, music is our moral, it's the lyrics that make the difference. That is not true. The heathen always knew what kind of music they needed to use to conjure up evil spirits. And we're talking just about the music, we're not talking about the text. Now, contemporary Christian music, CCM, basically evolved in the United States. And now I am going to talk a little bit negative because I think we need to understand. What happened in Christian music began, this will shock you, but I'm going to explain, it began with the gospel song. All right? Now, what is a gospel song? Generally defined, a gospel song is a song that has a refrain. <clears throat> now, there are exceptions on both sides, but that's, if you see a song with a refrain, that is pretty much classified as a gospel song. You can say that's a gospel song. <coughs> so what happened? Well, <coughs> excuse me, for some reason I have a little catch in my throat. What happened was, three things happened here in the United States in the 1800s, and if only one of them had happened, probably we'd have never, as a church, <coughs> picked up on the gospel song. But three things happened in a row in the 1800s. <coughs> Number one was the Methodist camp meeting in the South, and it picked up some of the Southern culture. Uh, and so here you have a huge group of people coming together. There are no songbooks. In the early 1800s, many people, were, or at least a significant number of people, were still illiterate. And so what kind of song are you going to write to teach a huge mass of people very quickly, who are not musically skilled and probably can't even, uh, couldn't have read music if you would have had it. Well, 
you have to have something easy. <coughs> so what you write is you write something pretty repetitious. And because it's a camp meeting and you're trying to get up uh, sort of a, a psychological, uh, emotional experience for the people, uh, you give it just a little bit more spice. And you do that by adding a little bit more rhythm. Okay? So we had these songs written, <coughs> very repetitious, so they were easy to learn, uh, with a little bit more emphasis on the rhythm. And then you have a refrain so that the people who can't at least help along with the stanza, can everybody join in the refrain? And you develop sort of a mass emotional experience with the refrain. So that's the, uh, that's the uh, camp meeting. On the heels of the camp meeting was the Sunday School Movement. Now it began in England, but it flowered in the United States. And again, you have huge groups of children who cannot read, who certainly can't read music or text, no songbooks. <clears throat> so what kind of song do you write? Well, you write a similar song, a song that has quite a bit of repetition, so it's easy to learn, and a song that has a little bit more rhythm to it because children are rhythmic. And of course, you have a refrain so all the children can join in and you have sort of a mass emotional experience with the refrain. On the heels of the Sunday School movement came the mass revivals at the end of the century under D.L. Moody and Arasanke and all their associates. It wasn't just them. There were many uh, revivalists uh, preaching and many singers singing in those days. And again, you have masses of people, at first at least, no songbooks, and you need an easy song to teach. And so you have those two elements, repetition, a little more emphasis on the beat, and of course you have the refrain. This kind of music was unheard of in the church. In fact, when it first appeared, there was a reaction. One of the things that happened was the churches that had instruments usually always, in fact, not usually, always used an organ. Organ was considered to be the majestic music of sacred song. And with the gospel song, in came the piano. Now the piano is a percussion instrument and it lent itself very well to accompanying these songs that had more emphasis on the rhythm. And I've done enough reading to know there was a real reaction in the church when the pianos were brought in. They were not considered instruments of sacred music. Now of course that didn't affect us because we weren't using instruments and I, God help us that we never will and I could give you a long discussion on that. Uh, but <clears throat> but I, I'm just giving you the reaction to these rhythmic songs that started to be sung in the churches and then with the pianos to accompany them. But there were two people who spoke out against this. Well, this is long in the past, and most people don't realize this. But they were true children of Issachar. The Bible says the children of Issachar knew the signs of the times and what Israel ought to do. And these two men realized, one of them was Lowell Mason, the other one was Thomas Hastings. And these two men, especially Lowell Mason, said, if this trend continues, it will corrupt church music. The gospel song was the first step down the road that led to rhythmic songs, repetitious songs, and it kept getting worse and worse and worse until we have CCM today. That's what happened. Lowell Mason saw that. Now, let me first make a disclaimer. I'm not opposed to singing gospel songs. Those first songs weren't that bad. And some of them were wonderful. When peace like a river, it is well with my soul. As far as I'm concerned, that's a hymn. Great is thy faithfulness, 
As far as I'm concerned, that's a him. This was just a little step in that direction. And I'm just going to say up front, I'm all in favor of singing gospel songs, but they should be sung with an understanding of what they are, with discretion. We should never let the gospel song replace the kind of songs we're going to talk about later. And that's what often happens. We have whole hymnals now that's basically gospel songs. Very few of the great hymns of the church are in those hymnals. That's the part that I'm troubled about. And that's the part that Lowell Mason was, was, was troubled about. That the gospel song would not only replace the hymns, but it would become, continue to be more and more rhythmic, more and more repetitious, and it would go down a road that would eventually corrupt church music. So those first gospel songs were fine. Uh, I have 200 of them in my book. <laughs> but it got worse and worse and worse. And so we should know that. And so when we sing the gospel songs, they should be sung with discretion we should basically sing hymns, use a few gospel songs with discretion, especially if there's a sermon preached and it's just a gospel song that fits the sermon best. Let's sing it. But let's always remember what the gospel song is. It is a step away from the hymns the church was used to singing in the past. And we'll talk about that later. Now, <clears throat> Lowell Mason not only warned against this, but he set himself to prove that you could write songs for these kinds of meetings that were easy to learn, delightful to sing, and yet were still hymns. And so you find, uh, you'll find more Lowell Mason songs in my hymnal than many hymnals because I happen to really appreciate what he did. Let me, let me read you the songs he set, wrote. And, and you'll recognize them as the songs we all love to sing. They're some of the songs we enjoy the most. And they're not gospel songs. They're hymns. Because that's what he was trying to accomplish to demonstrate that we could have hymns that were just as delightful, in fact, I would say more delightful and more meaningful to sing than the gospel songs. Let me read you a list of them. Joy to the World. Rise, Glorious, Conquer, Rise, that we just sang. And we're going to analyze that song in a few moments. When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. By the way, let me talk, uh, say something about that song. He arranged that song. That song was originally a plain song. I didn't have the thought to bring along a CD, to play some, a plain song to you. But the church for a thousand years sang plain song. They opposed all rhythm. The plain song is not metered. It has no rhythm. It's more like a chant, but some of them are very beautiful. And the church for a thousand years insisted that church music must be plain song. And then the first step really was to meter songs and give it a little bit of rhythm. When I Survey the Cross is a plain song that, I, that uh, uh, Lowell Mason metered. You look at that song, and there's no steps in it. It's all scale, up and down the scale, do, re, mi. There's not one step in that whole song, and that was typical of the plain song. They were even afraid, <laughs> those early Christians were even afraid to put an interval in there, to sing a do, mi. No, 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 it had to be do, re, mi. They didn't want anything jumpy. The heathens sang jumpy songs, and they danced to those songs. When I surveyed the one, I, I would have never thought you could write a song that didn't have any steps in it. It was just up and down the scale. But you look at but when I survey the wondrous cross. Well, let's just sing it. When I survey the wondrous cross, on which 
Christ the Prince of glory died. My rich escape I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride. Now would you sooner sing, Down at the cross where my Savior died. Which of those would you rather sing in relation to the crucifixion of Christ? See the difference? Okay. See, we don't think about these things. We are so used to it, and we're not aware of the fact that the church unwittingly set the stage for what happened. Hark 10,000 harps and voices. Oh, come, I'm, I'm giving uh, Low Mason's contribution. Oh, come, loud anthems, let us sing. I'll praise my maker while I have breath. To thy pastures fair and large. Wake the song of jubilee. Lo, what a pleasing... These are songs we love to sing. They're beautiful songs, but they're hymns. They are not gospel songs. Thomas Hastings, majestic sweetness sits enthroned. Rock of ages. And even William Bradbury, who wrote many gospel songs, wrote these wonderful hymns, Just As I Am. Tis midnight and on Allah's brow. How sweet, how heavenly is the sight. Prince of peace, control my will. These men were fighting hard for good church music. Now, what is wrong with contemporary music? The main thing is the emphasis is on the rhythm. I have a friend, Dr. Applegate, who was the chairman of the music department at Shippensburg University, and she's an Episcopalian. She's not a Mennonite. And she just shakes her head. She said, John, the rhythm has swallowed up the song. The Bible puts the emphasis on the melody. Let me read you. When the Bible describes music, it says things like this. Make sweet melody, Isaiah 23, 16. The Lord shall comfort Zion. Joy and gladness shall be found therein. Thanksgiving and the voice of melody. And now a negative. Take away from me the noise of thy songs, for I will not hear the melody of thy vials. And of course, we know in the New Testament, it says, be filled with the Spirit, speaking yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual song, making melody in your heart. The Bible clearly says that music is melody. And that's where the emphasis should be, not on the rhythm. Okay? Now, songs have been a powerful means of great revivals. They also have been a powerful means to take down a whole nation, as we have seen. Okay? Now, we want the best music with the most powerful effect on the heart and mind, not on the physical part, but on the heart and the mind. And fortunately, God has given us a copy of the new song that we keep talking about. And we can examine its profile, and then we can apply it to the songs that we sing. So I would like for you, does anybody know where the new song is actually given to us in the Bible? Revelation chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to it. <clears throat> now, of course, we don't have the melody here. We have just the words. But I would like to propose to you that even psychology tells us the four things that are necessary for the most effective communication, whether it's words, whether it's an essay, whether it's a poem, whether it's uh, uh, whatever, composition, 
The first thing is it should have a clear theme. Okay? Uh, in all the courses I had on communication, whether it was compositions, whether it was public speaking, it was always, you need to make it clear what you're speaking about. Now, if you get up and you just go with a stream of consciousness and say a bunch of good things and sit down, people might remember a few nuggets of truth you said, but they won't, if somebody says to them, what was the message about, they will say, well, I'm not sure. It was a good message. There were a lot of good things said, but I can't just tell you what the subject was. That's a message that didn't have a clear theme. So you should have a clear theme. It should be stated near the beginning, and then it should be repeated so people get, get it. So after the service, or after somebody's finished reading, whoop, uh, spelling on the board is a challenge sometimes. Repetition. Okay. It, should be, it, ha it has to have some repetition. Well, you say, well, John, you just condemned repetition. <laughs> I didn't condemn repetition. I condemned the overuse of repetition. But there has to be repetition. And so a good, a good message, a good composition, will have a theme. Usually in the title is where you get the theme. And then it'll have three points, or maybe more, uh, the fewer the better, that emphasize the theme, and it repeats it, but it does it with variety. Now, the variety is very important because it not only gives you interest and people don't fall asleep. The story is told of a preacher who preached, and he asked his wife after, do you think people agreed with my message? And she said, yeah, they were all nodding. <laughs> well, if you have too much repetition, that's what happens. So you have to have variety, and that makes it interesting. Not only does it make it interesting, but it expands the theme. It gives the theme from various angles and expands it. And then, of course, under each point, you'll have illustrations and quotes all on the theme, but adding this variety and, and expanding and, and making it bigger and, and uh, more inclusive. So variety is very important. So these two have to work together. There has to be repetition, but you have to have variety or people get bored. You have to have variety so that the uh, meaning of the song is, or, or the meaning of the uh, composition is expanded. And then finally, they always taught us, you need to have a good conclusion that wraps the whole thing up. And the, song, the composition has to go somewhere, start somewhere, proceed properly, and conclude. And it all wraps up in a nice package so that when, when you're finished reading the theme... It's made a tremendous impression when you're finished listening to the talk. It's made a tremendous impression because it was all tied together. It's interesting that even though this is words, this new song has exactly what I just described. I think that's very interesting. And if we're going to write music, the great composers learned this same thing. That if you're going to have a piece of music that is timeless, that people in all cultures through all ages are going to listen to over and over again, and everybody say that's a great piece of music. That's exactly what you have to have. I mean, this is just the way God created us. And I'm going to show you some hymns and how good composers did that. And we don't even think about it, but we do know this. They're the songs that we love to sing over and over again, and we feel very satisfied when we sing them. Okay? So we have a theme, repetition, variety, and conclusion. Let's look at this. Uh, if you look on your sheet, the classical composers called this a sonata style. Okay? A sonata style is a form of music with three or four movements in contrasting forms. 
You have the exposition in which the theme is presented. You have the development in which the theme is given in new, a new form, which is the variety. And you have the recapitulation in which the theme is restated, a fitting conclusion. And so now, let's look at this. We start with verse 9. Uh, we have this choir described up to that point. And then it says, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book. And this whole so song is about the worthiness of Christ. That's the theme. And it's just, it's just given over and over again. Thou art worthy. And the first variation of the theme is telling us why he's worthy. You're worthy to open the seals, for thou hast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and nation, people and nation. Thou hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And we started out with four beasts and four and twenty elders, and now the choir increases. The angels join. And we have ten thousand times ten thousand uh, choir members. And they bring back this theme, but now we have another variation. The first variation was why he was worthy. This variation is how worthy is he? He's worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then we have another increase in the choir. <laughs> Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth joins this choir. And then we have the last rendition of this choir, which is the conclusion. Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth on the throne and unto the Lamb, and here's the conclusion, forever and ever. It's the sonata style. And uh, now I want to illustrate this. So if you'll put up the first song. Thank you. That's good. Oh, no, no, no. I want uh, Come the Almighty King. That's it. This song appears in every hymnal I have ever looked at. I went through dozens, if not hundreds, of hymnals in my lifetime. My hobby, by the way, <laughs> if I had a hobby, was going to the... I hate to go to sales. You won't find me at most sales. I absolutely abhor sales. But I would try to figure out when they were going to sell the books. And then I went to the sale. And I bought all the songbooks if I could. And then I took them home and played through all of them on the piano. <laughs> that was my hobby. I loved music. And so, I don't think there's a hymnal. There might be now. But at least throughout history up until the last 30 years, I don't think there was a single hymnal that didn't have this song. And if you notice, the date is 17... 27? I believe it is. So this song has been around for 300 years. And it's literally one of the songs in our hymnals that we could sing almost every Sunday and nobody would complain. Now if you sang most gospel songs every Sunday, you'd soon have people saying, please, 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 we want something different. But they don't say that with this one because it does this probably better than any song that I know of, and it's probably the, the most, I hate to use the word popular, the most well-loved song that appears in every hymnal has been for the last 300 years, and I suspect 
for the next 300 years. This song will still appear in any hymnal, at least, that's worth having. Okay. So what does he do? This composer was an Italian. He gives us a little theme. So, me, do. Now, we're talking about the melody. We're not talking about the harmony. We're just talking about the melody. Okay. He does this little theme. So, me, do. Notice it's down here, too. Okay. But you see down here it does something different. Up here it's do and then it's up to re. Here it's do and down to so. Then the composer gives us this little step, uh, scale-wise step up and down. Okay. Then we have an expanded version of that pattern. Up and down. See that? Then he brings back the theme. Then he introduces a little variation here, but the interesting thing is we have a repetition of, um, well, yeah, we have a repetition of this, only it's different notes. This was do, re, mi, fa, so, fa, re, mi, re. This is re, mi, fa, mi, re, do. And then we have that repeated again. And then he does an inversion of the theme, do, mi, so, and then you have a wonderful conclusion with the highest note in the soprano here, and you have the highest note in the tenor here, which gives you a double resolution. Now, you don't think about that when you're singing it. All you know, if you're, if you're sensitive at all, is that this song just, it, it, it has a pattern, it goes through that pattern with repetition and variety, and comes to a conclusion. You feel like when you're finished, you actually, you actually have come to a conclusion when you sing this song. So I want you to notice, we're going to sing it, I want you to notice uh, the repetition. I want you to hear this little up and down. I want you to hear this expanded up and down. I want you to hear the theme coming back, but it's different. Then I want you to hear that th this is repeated with different notes twice. And then I want you to hear the inversion of the theme. I want you to hear the high point in the soprano, the high point in the tenor, which gives it just a fabulous conclusion. Let's sing a couple verses of Come Thou Almighty King. And I'll try to point out some things as we're singing. Do me so, come thou all. Now we're going to do this again. Go past the. Theme repeated but different. Help. This repeated but different. Father, glorious, or all victorious. Inverted theme. Highest note. Just a perfect song, all right? Come thou incarnate word, gird on thy mighty sword, our prayer attend. Come and thy people bless. And give thy word success, spirit of holiness, on us descend. To the great one in three, eternal praises be, and sever. Oh. Uh -huh.
a model that the church should have followed. And Lowell Mason did, so could we have the next one? Lowell Mason was a musician who went to Europe and trained under the masters, and he understood exactly what I just described to you. And so this, I want you to see his song. It's one of the most interesting songs in our hymnal, and there's a reason why we love to sing it. Here you have a stepwise progression. Do, me, dough. Now, there are people who listen to this say, you lost me. Please, if you have, is anybody lost in what I just described? I mean, feel free to raise your hand. I want everybody to get this, even if you don't understand anything about music, okay? So this is a stepwise progression. It's not do, re, me, it's do, me, do. Then we have a scale-wise progression. So, la, so. It doesn't jump. It's just up the scale and down. Then we have another stepwise progression, but it's different from this one, but it's a stepwise progression, so it's repetition with variety. Then we have another scale-wise progression. It's different from this one, but it's similar in that it's a scale-wise progression. Then we have this sort of, uh, 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 the first sort of climactic thing with that high tenor there. Then we have a little bit of an inversion here, but we have a stepwise progression and a scalewise progression all in the same measure. Then we have this, which is the same as this. Then we have this, which is the same as this. Then we have this, which is the same as this. And then we have sort of a, a, a movement toward the, the uh, high point in the song, which is this fall in the soprano and this fall in the tenor. But this song adds something else. This song adds a key change here. Those of you who play an instrument know that that fa, that sharped fa, sharped uh, F, is a giveaway that this has changed from the key of C to the key of G. And you don't even think about it, but I want you to listen to it when we sing it. Some of you may hear that change. You'll definitely hear this one when we go back to C. So you have all that repetition and all that variety written into this little song. A hymn isn't very much... Uh, very big to get all that in one, one uh, little composition. But this is just a masterpiece. And, and there's a reason, I'm telling you, the reason you like this song is because of what I just described to you. Okay? Now that's not saying that every song has to be perfect. If you look at Blessed Assurance, it has some repetition. In fact, it's one of the better gospel songs. Uh, we'll sing, we can sing that after a bit and I'll show you. It has some repetition, but it has variety, and it also reaches a conclusion, and it's a gospel song. So the, even the best gospel songs uh, had some of this, not as much as this. I mean, this is a very, very dense uh, experience of all of this. Okay, let's sing all four verses. And I want you to listen, I want you especially to listen for this key change. I want you to see how this comes back three times. Okay? And I want you to notice how this, is, this pattern is similar to this pattern. It's just a... <laughs> I look at this song and I marvel. I wish... If I could write one song like this in my lifetime, I would feel my whole life was worth having been lived. 
Rise, glorious conqueror, rise into the name. Sort of a climax. Now we start with an inversion. Then we're in. We're rolled past through those gates of golden rain in light. Now let's listen for the key change. Victoria. Key of C. Key of G. Back to the key of C. A is all. a fabulous song to give us the next one. J.D. Brunk was probably the, uh, the most talented musician we had in the last century. And of course he's coupled here with Isaac Watts. This song isn't quite as subtle as the other one. It does have some repetition and this is a, a variation and then we have the same thing here again. But the, uh, the, the thing that's notable about this one is the conclusion. Here we have the highest note in the soprano. Here we have the highest note in the tenor. But on that note, on that chord, there's dissonance. Now dissonance builds up a sense that it's not complete. It needs to be resolved. So we have dissonance introduced here. We have it really introduced here, so much so that the altos almost never sing that ray properly. And I'm going to listen to see if you people do, and I'll be disappointed if you don't. So you have dissonance introduced here. You have more dissonance here, which resolves beautifully right here. The the resolution here is just a major part of the high point of this song. And, of course, then it concludes. So you have have a triple uh, conclusion. You have a high point in the soprano. You have a high point in the tenor. You have dissonance that resolves all of that. I guess the best way that I could describe this is harmonic fireworks or something at the end of the song. <laughs> so, anyway. All right. Yes? It's in 23. Is that the same as in here? Yeah, it's the same as in there. It's a little hard for us to see from the back. Okay. Let's see. I don't think I have it listed. Um, yeah, in the Black Song Book. I'm trying to think. In the uh, Purple Book, it's 85. Okay. We're basically looking at the music, which you, you probably can see that. But yeah, that's right, if, you're, if you don't know the words. Don't, oh, I, I wanted to say this. To, as a testimony to the impression of this song, my mother 
had eight brothers, and they all left the Mennonite church except one, and he's a liberal Mennonite. But they sometimes say to me, are you folks still singing number 11 in the church hymnal, which is what the number was in the church hymnal? None of them are singers. None of them are musicians. But this song made the deepest impression of them, on them of any songs that we sung while they were with us. Uh, and, and there's a reason why. Because it, it does, especially this, it does really go somewhere and it, it has a conclusion. And of course it has, I never really analyzed the song as well as I should. I'm sure all of this harmony, if I knew more about harmony, I could tell you some interesting things that are happening there that fit this description as well. Okay, let's sing it. Do so, great God, holds my heart, lame. Thou art my hope, my joy, my rest, the glories that it does something different here. Name stand all engage. I heard some altos that did it right. Okay, let's uh, let's have it a little bit better even. All right. Thou great and good, thou just and wise, thou art my Father and my God, and I am thine by Ties thy son. Perfect. Now let's do what it says. I'll lift my hands. I'll raise my voice while I Altos made my day. Okay. It's a beautiful song. Okay. So, uh, that's the kind of music that the church sang uh, exclusively before the gospel song. And I don't want anybody leaving here saying that I put down the gospel song as just totally unworthy. I did not say that. I said we should use it with discretion, recognizing what it is and the trend that it established with music. And keep the hymns, the bulk of our singing, and the gospel song used with discretion. And there are many, many good gospel songs. All right, the next thing you should have, the melody should dominate. Then you should have a rich and varied harmony. And uh, we won't take time to illustrate that because we're going to get too much time involved here. And then it should have a subtle rhythm. Now, I told you that for, for a thousand years, the church did not permit any rhythm. They basically... Chanted, I wish I had brought a copy of the plain song along. Some, some of them are very beautiful. They're all anonymous, 
the early church was deathly afraid of allowing what they called self-expression, which was the ethos of Greek culture. Self-expression. And the church fought that tooth and nail. Okay? Let me say this yet. I'm going <laughs> to, this is really sort of off the subject, but it's very important. So did the Mennonite church fight self-expression. Our plain culture was, came out of our value system that emphasized humility, height, ability to surrender to each other and completely surrender self, and unity. And what our remnant churches, I think, did not understand is if we discard our plain way of life, we will soon lose the values that, they, that life expressed. So don't be surprised if in our churches we see an upsurge of individualism, self-expression, disunity. Our plain way of life grew out of those values and supported those values and encouraged those values. And so, uh, yeah, a subtle rhythm, that's what I was talking about, all right? Now, if you're sitting here this morning and you feel the rhythm of your heart, you should get up right now and go home. You are sick. Your hearts are all beating, but you're not conscious of it. If you are conscious of the rhythm of the song above everything else, it is sick. Did you get my point? The rhythm should be there. The the early church didn't think so. But we'll, we'll allow some rhythm. But it must always be unobtrusive. It's just there. When you're, when you're singing, Come Thou Almighty King, you're not thinking of the rhythm. When you sing, Rise, Glorious, Conquer, Rise, you're not thinking of the rhythm. Uh, when you're singing this song we just had, you're not thinking of the rhythm. You're thinking of the melody. The melody should dominate. And the rhythm should just be there, uh, subtly supporting the melody and the harmony. All right. And then it should have a worthy text. It should have a text... And a piece of music that tells the same story. A little while ago I sang Down at the Cross. That song is not in my book. I don't think that's a worthy song to sing about the crucifixion of Christ. Here's another one that is in my book. Listen to this. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. Really? That surely makes sin sound like a lark to me. The music does not fit those words at all. The only reason it's in my book is because the rest of the words do fit. All my heart to him I give ever to. But I always cringe when we sing, I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. Boy, this is fun. And that's the problem with contemporary Christian music. The song is saying, holy, 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 when the music is singing, ho-hum, 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 with a strong beat to it. I actually heard when I surveyed the Wonders Cross one time, sung by a group, they sang the first group, first verse they sang a cappella, four-part, beautiful. On the second verse, I heard a little tick. You know how they do this. They introduce you slowly into it. And I thought, oh no, here it comes. And by verse four, when I surveyed the Wonders Cross, was a full-fledged rock song. That's what the music, contemporary Christian music does to the sacred. You know, there used to be such a thing as sacred music. 
Their music isn't sacred anymore. There's no difference between their music and the world's music. We used to talk about sacred music and secular music. All right? The music should tell the same story. And then the music should be, the text should be poetic. Much of contemporary music is just mundane words. It doesn't have any graphic uh, uh, words to it at all. I want you to turn to the first song that we have recorded, which is the Song of Moses, which is in Exodus 15. Would you turn there? Exodus 15. Now, in Exodus 14, we have the historic account given in prose form. And then we have, in 15, we have a poetic version of the same thing. A song to be sung about this experience. But look at the language. Let's start with verse 8. The depths have covered them. They sank into the bottom as a stone. Thy right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power, and thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed in pieces the enemy. And in the greatness of thine excellence, thou hast overthrown them that rose up against thee. Thou sentest forth thy wrath, which consumed them as stubble. And with the blast of thy nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright as a heap, and the depths were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. Look at that beautiful parallelism there. My lust shall be satisfied with them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. Thou didst blow with thy wind. The sea covered them. They sank as lead in the mighty waters. That's graphic language. You don't have anything like that in verse in, in chapter 14. That, that's just a historical account. It, I mean, I'm not denigrating it. But that's what poetry does. It not only speaks to your mind, it speaks to your emotions. It gives you pictures. Poetry is just wonderful. Would you turn to another one? Which is um, uh, Judges chapter 5. <clears throat> Judges 5. This is Barak and Deborah. Again, in chapter 4, you have the historical account written in prose. And then you have the poetic account in chapter 5, which is the same thing given in poetry. Okay? Now, chapter 4 basically just gives you the facts. But in chapter 5, we have some graphic imagery that helps us understand a little bit better the text in chapter 4. For instance, I want you to notice something in verse 4. The Lord wenneth... Lord, when thou wentest out of Seir, when thou marchest out of the field of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped, the clouds dropped water, the mountains melted before the Lord, even that Sinai from before the Lord God of Israel. And so we find out why Sisera lost. In chapter 5, it doesn't really say what happened. But this chapter uh, tells us that there was a flood. Uh, Israel was a standing army. They were not permitted to have horses and chariots. And uh, these Horses and chariots came across the mountain into the valley of Ezralon, and uh, they were fearsome because the chariots usually had swords uh, fixed to their axles, and they could just go down through a standing army, just mow off the legs. And so when Israel saw these chariots coming over the mountain, they were terrified because they were just sitting ducks or standing ducks in the valley. But what the enemy didn't know 
was just at the right time, upstream, there had been a cloudburst, and there was a great wave of water coming down, and by the time they got to the valley, it was flooded. And their chariot wheels came off, and they couldn't proceed, and the standing army had the advantage. And they won the battle. You get that picture in the poem. <laughs> I'm trying to convince you that there should be good lyrics, and I'm going to show you some in our hymnals. What are the effects of song over just ordinary prose or, or good poetry? Number one, good poetry arouses and directs the emotions. It not only gives you the, the information for your mind, it gets your emotions involved. It gets your eyes involved. It makes a much stronger impression. And it directs your emotions from self to God. Now, there's one criticism of contemporary music. It's all about me. The song, Wounded for Me. And I have it in my hymnal. I think in five verses, there's 23 times the word me is there. That's typical of contemporary music. The emphasis is on me. Well, people are going to say, well, but the psalmist wrote an awful lot about his experience. But the difference is this. Thomas started with his experience, but by the time you're finished, the focus is on God. And a good song carries you along with your mind, your emotions, and, and all of your senses from self to God. And that's what happens here. Number two, it adds intensity to the experience with the imagery that arouses the emotions and the imagination. Number three, it aids in memory. It's much easier to memorize the poem than it would be to memorize the, the historical account. Number four, it creates community when it's sung. It's a community experience. And number five, it enables us to experience the same thing over and over again with graphic feelings connected with it. Did you know that God commanded the writing of songs? He said to Moses... Now, therefore, write you this song for you. God actually not only commanded us to sing, he commanded composers to write songs. Now, therefore, write you this song for you and teach it to the children of Israel. Put it in their mouths as a witness against them in the future. When they deviate from me, when this song is sung, they will know how powerful I am and the, and the uh, uh, treachery of their departure from such a God. That all happens when we sing. All right? <clears throat> Now, songs have enduring quality. The good songs have enduring quality, like I told you. And why shouldn't they? We all say we believe in eternal life. Now, when I was a boy, the preachers always said it doesn't just mean in the future. We have it now. And I always was a little boy interested in words, and I would say to people, what's eternal about our existence? Oh, we have Jesus. Well, yeah, but what's eternal about it? What can I say I'm experiencing of eternity right now? Well, it's to be able to make a decision today that is still good tomorrow, next week, next year, 10 years from now, 100 years from now, and in eternity, if you look back, the thing you did today will still make sense because it was in the perspective of eternity. Now, it doesn't make any sense to me that we're going to say we have eternal life and then we're going to sing songs that will be obsolete in the next 30 years. It would seem to me that people who have eternal life would sing eternal songs. Songs like, Come Thou Almighty King, that we can sing forever. Okay? And besides, I'll say this yet about the gospel songs. <laughs> Please don't leave this meeting thinking I'm completely negative. But there's some things we need to think about. 
The gospel songs don't fit well with Anabaptists. They were written for revival evangelistic meetings, and they do very well for that. They, they serve their purpose very well. They call people to, uh, to uh, repent and give their hearts to Jesus and experience uh, salvation. But they seldom say anything about cross-bearing, discipleship, obedience, surrender, the kingdom of God. Those themes that we Anabaptists uniquely emphasize are not in those songs. So it really is strange that Anabaptists would make their total diet those songs that, are, that don't have almost any of the themes that we want to emphasize are part and parcel of what it really means to be a Christian. How many understand what I'm saying? All right. My plea is that we, we get songs and focus on them and make them the main diet of our worship that emphasize the themes that we believe in. And to have songs that are going to be here for as long as the Christian church is here on this earth. To, this afternoon we're going to look at the history of Christian song. One of the, one of the uh, sad parts of CCM is everybody wants to sing the songs that were written in the last 30 years. And here's the tragedy. We have a 6,000 year history, beginning with Exodus 15, of God's people singing and all those songs will be forgotten. And we'll only sing the little ditties that people have written in the last 30 years, those little choruses that you sing over and over again ad nauseum. We'll have more on that later. All right, so we want songs that reflect permanence. Themes that can be, can, can be repeated over and over again with music that can be repeated over and over again. And they're enduring. They will always be part of us. Let's look at one of them. In the purple book, 683. 683. This song doesn't appear at all in many of the recent books that we've used. This lady, Adelaide Proctor, was a very sick lady all her life. Hardly had a day without pain. Died at the age of 39, if you go check her dates back in the index. What kind of song does a person like that write? Well, this is what she writes. My God, I thank thee who has made the earth so bright, so full of splendor and of joy, beauty and light. So many glorious things are here, noble and right. She's sick. And she's saying there's so many things that are noble and right, and I'm sick. I thank thee too that thou hast made joy to abound. So many gentle thoughts and deeds circling us round that in the darkest spot of earth some love is found. If you read... Stories about concentration camps, you'll read beautiful stories of sacrificial love in those camps. She said, there isn't a place on this earth that is so dark that it comprehends the light. There's all, that light is so persistent, it's there everywhere, even in the darkest spot of earth. But it's verse 4 that really has struck me every time I sing it. I thank thee, Lord, that thou, I'm sorry, verse 3. I thank thee more that all our joy is touched with pain. 
that shadows fall on brightest hours, that thorns remain. She's thanking God for that. Why? So that earth's bliss may be our guide and not our chain. You see, the people who pursue just pleasure end up in bondage. And she says there's just enough pain, there's just enough thorns in life to keep that from happening. We have pleasure, we enjoy that, but then there's the pain, there's the dark hours, there's the things that keep us from just going down that road to our own bondage. It's a tremendous insight. You don't get that in a song like Heaven Came Down and Glory Filled My Soul, or There's Honey in the Rock, or I mean... (laughs) Those songs just don't have that kind, they don't have that kind of insight that you can chew on the rest of the week, or the rest of your life for that matter. Verse 4, I thank thee, Lord, that thou hast kept the best in store. We have enough, yet not too much to long for more. A yearning for a deeper peace not known before. We're never going to quite get it all in this life. And she says, that's good. And then the last verse, I thank thee, Lord, that here our souls, though amply blessed, can never find, although they seek, a perfect rest, nor ever shall, until they lean on Jesus' breast. That is rich. That is a text worthy of singing over and over and over again, and music also. You notice, I want you to notice, uh, at the first line you have, my God, I thank thee who has made it, comes down that scale. And then in the second score, you come down that same scale, do, ti, la, so, but then it's not fa. The fa is completely missing in the first one. Here we put a fee. And then we, ha- we have, from there on, we have a variation. It's just, the music and the, uh, the uh, text here is just absolutely unrivaled. Okay. I want you to turn to 191. And I must wrap this up. Uh, I did something wrong here. 836 is what I want. 836. Do you folks sing this one? How many know it? Well, we'll sing a little bit of it because the music is worthy as well. My Lord, my Master, at thy feet adoring, I see thee bowed before thy lotus. um, Let me start again. My Lord, my Master, at thy feet adoring, I see thee bowed before thy load of woe. For me a sinner is thy lifeblood pouring. For thee my tears, for thee my Savior scarce my tears will flow. You're shedding your blood, and I can hardly shed any tears. Thine own disciple to the Jews has sold thee with friendship's kiss and loyal word he came. How oft a faithful, let's not be critical here. How oft of faithful love my lips have told thee, while thou hast seen my falsehood and my shame. With taunts and scoffs they mock which seems thy weakness, with blows and outrage adding pain to pain. Thou art unmoved and steadfast in thy meekness. When I am wronged, how quickly I complain. My Lord, my Savior, when I see thee wearing upon thy bleeding brow a crown of thorn, shall I for pleasure live or shrink from bearing whate'er my lot may be of pain or scorn? O victim of thy love, O pangs most healing, O saving death, O wounds that I adore, O shame most glorious, Christ before thee kneeling, I pray thee keep me thine forevermore. 
I literally get goose pimples when we sing this song at home. It is so true. The comparison between Christ's response and ours. I think you need to appreciate the, we'll, we'll make this our concluding song. I think you need to appreciate the music to this too. Domi, my Lord, my Master, at thy feet adoring, I see thee bowed beneath thy load of woe, for me a sinner is thy lifeblood pouring for thee, my Savior, scarce my tears shall flow. Verse 3. With taunts and scoffs they mock what seems thy weakness with blows and out rage adding pain to pain. Thou art unmoved and steadfast in thy meekness when I am wronged, how quickly I complain. My Lord, my Savior, when I see Thee wearing upon Thy bleeding brow the crown of thorns shall I for pleasure live or shrink from bearing what air may lot may be of pain or scorn. Amen. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the tremendous songs that have been given to us. Lord, help us not to barter them away for something less. Help us not to focus on something to the exclusion and, and uh, forgetfulness of the wonderful heritage of song you've given. Help us in the next session, Lord, to be able to survey that heritage in a way that solidifies our commitment to it and our determination that nothing of the past that's good shall be lost because of our infatuation for something novel and something uh, gratifying more to our flesh. And help us, Lord, to continue to find songs and sing songs that reinforce the, the uh, disciplines of the gospel that bring true joy and satisfaction in our lives. Bless us. Bless this congregation to be a connoisseur of good music and good text. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much.